Welcome to Just Go Grind podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, Director of Marketing at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Ryan Bartlett, the co-founder and CEO of True Classic, direct-to-consumer men's brand that's went from zero to 150 million in revenue in just a few years. We dive into all aspects of this story, how he grew it, how he started this company in the first place, and much, much more. Let's get to it. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time and I always like to set the scene. True Classic, what is this company doing, Ryan? Man, what aren't we doing? Well, <laughs> we're selling apparel to men. Um, we are putting a lot of goodness into the world in the form of uh, donations. You know, we're involved. We were just in Skid Row last week for the LA Mission event, handed out 15,000 shirts. Um, so we're doing a lot on that front. Um, we're moving and shaking, man. There's a lot going on. We're on this crazy hiring spree that I was just telling you about. Uh-huh. Um, we're developing tons of new products this year. It's been absolutely insane. Like we're rolling out, we just rolled out activewear as a whole new line. So we're really excited about that. It's performing pretty well. Um, actually it's performing better than we expected. And then we have chinos rolling out. We have denim rolling out, uh, in the next two months. So just a huge year for the product development team and just, just customer acquisition in general, but um, just so much yeah. happening here. That I love saying the scene with that because you never know what you're going to pick up from that that I haven't already seen in research where it's like, all right, let's see what they're what they're doing and then we'll come back to the beginning. So I want to know the origin story. I know you have a, quite the journey you've had with this company for people who aren't familiar. Let's go to the very, very beginning. Why start this company in the first place, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, I always knew I wanted to get into e-com. So I come from digital marketing background and, and you know, I grew up a musician and a poker player. And those were kind of the ways I made money before digital marketing. Um, not so well though. If you know anything about a musician's life and a poker player's life, you're just basically broke forever. So it was a rough go of it most of my life. And then the digital marketing thing happened kind of organically because I worked for an SEO company as a developer designer. And then I started like finding that SEO was just the way to go. And, and really what it was is that acquisition was the way to go. And that's where the real money is. So I started learning all that, started my own company eventually, did that for 11 years. And then um, I grew a lot of people's businesses. I learned a lot from that whole process. And then I just knew that whatever I got into, I was just going to be more intentional, more thoughtful and execute faster and also just be way more creative than anyone in the space that I was competing with. So the way that the t-shirt thing came about was, um, I was kind of looking at different options of things to sell and the t-shirt thing just happened organically. I just kept noticing that I kept getting frustrated by the fact that I felt like the shirts on the market for men just weren't really built for our bodies. They were just kind of this standard default boxy style. And I didn't really understand why that was. And the more I dug, the more I realized that, you know, the premium market, everyone was just completely gouging their customers and and massively overcharging. And when I looked at what it cost to make a shirt and what these guys were getting on a margin basis, I was just like, this is insane. These guys are charging these prices, you know? So 60, 70, $80 for a premium shirt. Like there just has to be a gray area in here where we're not at the bottom and we're not at the top or somewhere right in that middle market. So I went on this journey of just trying to figure out what I would really want out of a shirt and what I think people would really like and and what that price point would be. 
So I, I kind of went on this journey of creating the IP of True Classic. I created the website, did, did everything, got it ready and, and had an idea of what I wanted out of the shirt and how I wanted it to fit on the body. And um, before I was really re- able to launch, I thought I need a partner who's like knows apparel to where I can, cause I wasn't really an apparel guy. I knew what I liked, but I, I didn't know how to really make it come to fruition. So I hit up my buddy, Matt, who's one of my co-founders and he's more on the finance tech side of things. Um, and so he was like, I got the perfect guy. It was Nick, who's my other co-founder who comes from a strong apparel background. And he knew exactly what I wanted when I told him. He was like, I, I, can, I can absolutely do that. And the first prototypes were just like, they were perfect. Like right out the bat, he knew exactly how to make and bring my, my dream to fruition. And, um, and that really started it, man. I mean, it was just one phone call and I gave away so much equity on that one phone call. <laughs> Looking back, it was the most expensive call I ever made in my entire life. And, um, and yeah, it really just started from that. And then, you know, we got, we, we started it with no money virtually. I mean, it was kind of a handshake deal and, uh, we got our first manufacturer on a relationship. So it was really just like, Hey, can we get a credit line, a small credit line, nothing crazy. And then, you know, do we have room to ramp up? And it was a big manufacturer who just happened to have a relationship with Matt. And so it just all aligned for us kind of perfectly. And since I had the digital marketing background, we didn't have to go in debt and hire a million people. I could do all the marketing head to toe uh, for the first probably seven or eight months before we hired anybody. And then Nick was doing like all the customer service and the product development and negotiating with the manufacturers. And Matt was kind of dealing with like the vendor contracts and, and just making sure that the finances were in order. And, um, and that was kind of the beginning. There's a, there's a few things I want to go back to. Yeah. One being on the differentiation side of things. You kind of saw it was in the market. You obviously knew there was an opportunity to get something different. That's why you started this company. Just tell me anything more of that and how you thought about it, how you thought, how you wanted to pursue in terms of like what true classic would be. Because a lot of entrepreneurs starting, see something, have an idea for something, but like they don't really think about positioning necessarily. I'm curious about how you thought about that, Ryan, with true classic. One thing that I absolutely knew in whatever market that I wanted to tackle was that like people have to be able to pin you to something, right? Like they have to be able to say that, oh, you're that brand that does that thing. So I knew right away that I wanted to go super narrow. Um, I knew that I just wanted to do crew neck. I just wanted to do a few colors and I just wanted the, the, the fit to be very specific so that people could really pin it down and go, oh, that's the best crew neck. And that it's the best because of how it feels and the way that it fits, right? I didn't want to come out with like 10 different products because once you're the everything product, you're just gap, essentially. You're not, you're not anything. You're just, you're just everything. So it's hard for people to really narrow it down. So that's kind of how I think about it. And now obviously we've exploded into everything, but it's because we can bring that value. But originally what I wanted to do was actually even more narrow. I wanted to just do uh, black and white. I wanted to be like the best black and white everything. So start yeah. with like a black shirt and a, and, and a white shirt and just be the best black and white crew neck shirt that existed on the market. But I very quickly realized after talking to Nick, it was just like, yeah, but like most of the market's going to want more than black and white. Even though I had all these great ideas for creative and how the whole site would just be black and white uh-huh. and everything was really cool, right? You're really wrong with it, yeah. And definitely <laughs> stand out too because no one has really, you know, really gone that narrow. 
But once you get in it, you realize there's just like, you would be neglecting such a massive piece of the market by going that route. But <laughs> so that's kind of how I think about it. So from that, there's a lot to go into, obviously, with the marketing side that we will in one second. But early manufacturing, obviously, you said you had that relationship with a manufacturer, uh, which is very helpful in any type of apparel uh, company as well. But take me through a, more of the product than with them that you knew you wanted to develop. So you might kind of mention the fit itself. Was there certain materials you wanted? Was there certain things around that? Like, okay, this is cheaper than that. Just take me through more of that because the product itself is like everyone raves about it. I'm curious more about the product. Yeah, for sure. You know, originally, I wanted to do bamboo and... Uh... Once we started figuring out how difficult it was to kind of manufacture and how costly it was, we kind of killed that idea right off the bat. Um, I had always loved bamboo shirts kind of growing up. I, it was like, even though they were a little expensive, I just loved them. I loved the way they felt. So I was like telling the manufacturer, I'm like, look, what's the equivalent? Like what, what percentage composition can you mix to get that bamboo feel? I don't know if you've ever tried like bamboo sheets or bamboo, like anything, but it's insanely soft. It's just like some of the best that you can, you know, other than like Egyptian cotton or, cotton, or, yeah. or cashmere, it's like, it's just really a different level. So what they came back with was, was a 60, 40 blend of polyester cotton. And it's a little bit, you know, more technical than that. Obviously, like there's, you know, you have to brush it. A certain, I don't know if you know anything about kind of uh, no. manufacturing, but like cotton has to be brushed in a certain way to get to a certain level of softness. And there's things that you have to do in the manufacturing side to really like get the most out of the fabric and make sure that it, you know, stays constructed well and that, um, you know, it holds its color and all those important things. So we worked really closely with them and we had a bunch of prototypes and we did a bunch of iterations on the shirt to really get it perfectly. And then once we were good to go, you know, we just went to market with it and that was really it. When you went to market, I'm actually curious too, with the quantities and everything, because I've played with apparel though in a different way. We had a company that did uh, ugly sweaters, uh, dealing with sizes and everything can be a nightmare. Take me through more of why you thought about the uh, initial run you did with that, with that manufacturer and also like size and all of that, like details that people don't think about until they're in it. They're like, oh shit, like this is actually a lot to think. Like, just take me through that. Yeah, it's insane. And <laughs> like the other big problem is that when you overbuy and then it doesn't sell through, you're screwed because especially if you're starting out, you just, you have to go really small. So that's what we did. We only did, I think like four or five colors and we only yeah. did crew neck. So we didn't go to V neck or long sleeve or anything yet. We just did crew and we did like, I think, no, maybe it was like six colors. Um, and we did very limited size run. We didn't even have two XL at this point. We had small, medium and large and XL. And that was about all we could really get off the bat. And then actually six colors was quite a bit to start with. I remember thinking that like we probably went too big on that um, because we still didn't even know if we had a viable product. But um, yeah. but yeah, it was it was a combination of things that made those decisions. But um, but yeah, we started really kind of narrow on that. I know you said the black and white thing and you mentioned, okay, that was the original idea kind of, but then six colors. Uh, just curious, six colors versus eight colors versus 10 colors. Uh, I like the nitty gritty details. So I'm, I'm curious about why that, just how you got to that point. Well, honestly, we were still in such an early phase that we just didn't even know if this was the right product yet to even sell. I mean, it was yeah, all yeah. just punch. And I was looking at the market and I'm just like, I'm looking at the guys that are doing it. And I'm just like, God, they're doing such a bad job on the marketing side. And I just don't feel like they're being right to the customer. And, uh, and I, and I it just thought, you know, I could do this better than them. And I, I had a lot of confidence, but I still didn't know what the market thought, right? Because if you get in your head about what's going to sell, 
all that matters is the market. It's all a human thing at the end of the day, right? So you can't just work in a silo or a vacuum. You have to really think about that. So we put out the six colors that I thought were the best colors, like mainly is like, what do guys normally wear? Earth tones, right? So like your blacks, your grays, your, 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 um, your white, your greens, your blues, like it, it, it has to be kind of like natural, normal guy colors. So we just came out with a very basic palette of colors and it turns out, you know, we were right on all the colors. It was just all the stuff we would normally wear and what other guys would wear. So we got yeah. kind of lucky with that. We didn't, you know, and we've obviously missed on some colors with seasonal pushouts and things like that, but you live and learn, right? You, you, <laughs> it doesn't sell, you throw it on a fire sale to get rid of it and then you just never come back right. to it. So. <laughs> on to the next one. Exactly. I, I've read a lot, a lot about your story too. So I have a little context here. One of the things you mentioned, I think it was on LinkedIn post, uh, you did $26,000 in 651 orders in the first month. Your experience obviously is digital marketing. You have that background. Take me through how you thought about the initial marketing for True Classic. I'll go through the evolution, but I'm curious about the early days, like initially 2019. Man, it was kind of brutal. I mean, looking back, <laughs> our first creative was like so bad. Like I'm... <laughs> I'm a creative on the music level, but I am not a creative on the, you know, photo photography, like yeah. side and modeling. Like that was all such a new world to me. So like I was just putting together like the most hideous collections of images, <laughs> but it turns out like you really, you know, what's weird about that now is we've come full circle and like the, the stuff that ends up crushing on Facebook for us is like the stills and not like the expensive ass comedy yeah. videos that we spend so much time and energy making but like literally a single picture of a shirt on, on the floor like a flat lay just yeah. crushing so like i did a lot of basic still stuff in the beginning because we just had nothing else we did one shoot and uh and we just used that a million times over for the first like three months that's all we had and uh you know luckily it sold well enough to where it got into people's hands and then what ended up happening was after the first initial uh, orders went out, people started kind of telling people about it and it just started to kind of like catch steam and the reviews started rolling in. And that's when we kind of knew we were on to something. Yeah. To get that initial traction, obviously you were testing in the beginning and everyone who runs a business understands like a lot of that's testing for sure. With that too, were you always... Was it just Facebook ads? Was it other ads? Uh, did you know you wanted to try different channels? Uh, I'm just curious on how you personally approach this because there's many ways to go about it. A hundred percent. So my areas of expertise was Google. It was SEO, AdWords, and I had a lot of experience running media buying on Facebook. Other than that, I really didn't have a ton of experience. It turns out actually where most of the profitability comes from the business is the retention side. So I learned very quickly the power of email and SMS, and uh, that really transformed the way I looked at business. And I realized that like the people that do retention internally in your company are quite possibly the most valuable people there. So um, originally I knew I was covered on the SEO front, but SEO takes forever. I don't know if you know anything yeah, about yeah, SEO. Yeah. Okay. It takes a lifetime of, of energy to get where you need to be. I knew AdWords was going to be pretty fruitful for us because it's such a different medium than Facebook. You know, Facebook is like that first interaction and, and you're really like trying to convince them. Google is like, they're already searching for like, where do I buy a t-shirt? So like I knew it was going to work on Google a little bit better than Facebook. And, uh, and it's still to this day, it's a higher ROAS overall than Facebook. But, um, but, you know, we just started a very, very small budget. We started at $100 a day. 
and Google didn't ramp up as fast as Facebook. This is pre iOS 14 too, before they took all the privacy permissions away. You know, we got lucky in the fact that we started in 2019 because we had a full year and a half of all that extra data that they lost. So we were targeting, you know, all the right people and just seeing tremendous success. And, you know, thankfully, uh, we were we came up during that time period when it was the Wild West and everyone was giving away everything, uh, no questions asked. So, um, but yeah, to, to answer your question, it was Google, it was Facebook. I, I I wasn't savvy enough to test TikTok or Snap yet, um, and we weren't doing too much on email in the beginning or SMS, and that was really it. I would say if I had to pin it down to one thing, it really was Facebook. The, the, their AI is just there's just nothing better out. Yeah, there's no no better targeting. Uh, was that just to be clear? Is it Facebook? Is in Facebook itself, or actually Facebook? Yeah, Instagram? the both. Yeah, it's Facebook and Instagram together. I would say yeah. Instagram obviously lends itself better yeah. to fashion related products, but um, yeah. I mean, I couldn't have done it without them. I mean, honestly, Facebook was such a game changer, and I watched so many people in these private. Uh, like I was a part of a lot of e-com groups, like uh, what do you call them? Like Facebook groups. Yeah. And I learned so much from those guys. I mean, I was watching people in third world countries scale to the moon with drop shipping only on the backbone of Facebook, like literally zero marketing. And all they would do is, is make a website, make a product, throw it in Facebook, and it would either win or die, right? And the ones that would win they would just scale to the moon. And I'm like sitting here like these guys who have no education on this stuff are able to scale to hundred K a month, 200 K a month. And they're like changing people's lives around them in these third world countries. They're going from like huts to like building houses for their families and their villages. Like it's just unbelievable stories. It was just so inspiring to me. Yeah. And I just thought like this Facebook thing is unbelievable what I'm witnessing. So that would just gave me a lot of confidence that like, if I put some time and energy into it and learned it and, and then eventually like bring on experts that know how to run media buying, that the sky is kind of the limit. Yeah. It's funny. I looking back to, I was running uh, Facebook ads, and everything for e-commerce company back in 2016 and 2018. And like the gl- not glory days, but definitely yeah. better than what they are today and the prices and seeing the prices progressively get higher. Like, shit like this exactly. is this is wild it's the progression of that and, and like businesses like we're friends with a lot of big businesses and like they're just they're losing it like they're yeah. they're laying off 20 30 percent of people like they got crushed by this update and thank god we're in a large enough tam to where we didn't really feel it at all and because we're such a broad product but like man if you're selling like golden roses or something where it was like insanely niche like you're done, like you're just finished and, and you had to like completely pivot to like only Google basically. So it's rough out there. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things you mentioned with that too, you mentioned how just even like a single kind of basic image ad does really well for you at the, this point, but you obviously spent money and <laughs> created these very funny video ads as well. Let's take, let's go through the inception of those ads and how those came about. Yeah. So we just, you know, originally we just didn't know what would work, right? So we were just, we're big proponents of testing, obviously. Yeah. And um, I was trying, like we kept just hiring these agencies who would do very lackluster content and it would get us by, but like we were never really that impressed. And we just kept trying and trying and trying and failing at, at creative. And, but it was, it was working on some level, like obviously we were able to grow the business and, but it was more about the product 
than it was the, the marketing in the beginning because the marketing wasn't that great um, yeah. because we just didn't have that talent to come in here and do the shoots the right way. So eventually what happened was, you know, I kept thinking like, how can I make, because I started making these ads that were very informative and educational. And I thought, okay, we're very intentional when it comes to the product and the way to develop it. We need to be more intentional about the ads we're creating. We need to uh, uh, educate people on why this is so yeah. much better. And then what I started thinking was, what if we just started making people laugh and that's all we did? And it wasn't even about selling the product anymore. I bet you that would bring them more value because then they would, they would feel better. They would laugh maybe, and they would make an emotional connection. And it just played so much into the theme of our business, which is just intentionality. So like when I recreated our first comedic ad, it was like this light bulb just went off. When I uploaded it to Facebook and the next day, when I saw that ROAS climb to numbers yeah. I had never seen before, yeah. and I started reading through the comments and people were saying, I literally am gonna buy this just because of this ad made me laugh. It was just like a light bulb went off and I was like, oh, this is it. Like I'm only doing content from on comedy from here on out. Like, like really. <laughs> and then it also made yeah. me realize like, how great is it if you can just create content to make people's day better and you're not even selling the product really, you're just there to make them laugh. Like to me, that's the best thing you can be doing, yeah. right? So even though we still do a lot of content around shoots and like the kind of the traditional media, the comedy just works so well for us and we're still growing into it. We're using a lot of new people. Obviously, Greg Tube has been a huge hit for us. Um, those are the two guys from Philly that do most of our ads. They're kind of like the face of the brand now. Um, but there's just, there's so much room for improvement. And I just see comedy as such a great way to build that, you know, connection with people and just kind of, you know, make their day a little bit better. Plus like how annoying are ads for the most part? Like they're usually really lame. They don't get the product value props across whatsoever. They always miss. And then like, I'm like, I just want to be the guy that just makes people laugh and makes it better than everybody, you know, what they're doing. I mean, you really only remember the ads that make you laugh anyway, right? So like, why not fall into that bucket? Yeah. So yeah, so people, it's memorable, way more memorable to know true, who True Classic is. And obviously then you know your product inherently. I, I want to go through more of like the scaling upside because obviously there's a, a level of, okay, getting started, very tough figuring out the right products, manufacturing, all of that uh, initial kind of feedback, but you got feedback initially was great. <laughs> You're growing. This is well, lovely. But going from zero to like 150 million is that doesn't just happen overnight. It happened very quickly in this case being three years or so. But just take me through more of that in terms of scaling, especially let's, let's talk about the more the marketing side of that first uh, and how that happened. And we can get into more of the people building all that sort of thing in a second. But I want to know more about the marketing as you scaled and what kind of helped you in that regard. It really, it, what it all came down to was understanding. So if you're living and dying by Facebook, for example, the most important metric that means anything to the business is what's called your break even ROAS, right? So like if you're, if it, so what Facebook takes into consideration, which is great, is the conversion value of what you're selling. So that when you see that ROAS number, you know that you spent a dollar and made a dollar 50. Right. So you made 50, 50 cents profit yep. now, but what's even more tricky is you have to take into account your OPEX, right? Like your expenses, your overhead, everything else that like takes that 150. So you actually your break even is not a dollar. It's a dollar 75. So even if you're making a dollar 50, you're still losing yep. 25 cents, right? Which is deceiving because you think you're making money, 
But when you run your P&L, you're like, oh shit, we actually lost this month, right? So you have to find that yeah. metric to me, especially when you're starting out as a business, is so insanely crucial to understand what your break-even ROAS is before you can do anything. Because that's kind of your holy grail metric that you can just continue to scale. Because as long as you just keep upping those budgets and you're not saturating your creative, uh, you have to just kind of live and die by that metric. And that's what we did. Now, as you scale, you run into this, what they call frequency problem, which is when you start hitting the same people with the same ads, right? Even though the pool of targeting is so big, you have to scale your creative accordingly. So what we did is we just started working with everybody all the time. And we just kind of like started overloading ourselves with working with all these agencies. And we didn't have the in-house crew that we have now. And so now we can handle it and we know like we're, we're not like scaling infinitely like we were on the paid media. We're kind of like leveling off on the, on the spend um, because it's kind of a sweet spot for us. Um, but we are kind of incrementally going up on that. But now we can handle it and it's predictable. So we know how many assets we need per month. But in the beginning, you just don't know. So you have to watch that frequency metric. You also have to be very mindful of what your click through looks like. So click through rate. And, and frequency are your two kind of metrics that we look at. And especially in the, in the beginning as to like, do I need to do more creative or not? You know? And, and so you have to kind of stay ahead of it, but we also didn't know like how fast we could scale it. So like, it was always this game of like, yep. like, are we doing enough? We have to catch up. We have to catch up. We have to catch up. So like, if anything, we probably did too much content. And which is also a good thing to have because you can just pick the best of it. You know, it's like a musician who makes an album. They do like a hundred songs and then they actually only end up doing 10 of the best songs for their album. It's the same thing with us. We just did this huge library and then we were like, okay, let's just take the best stuff and like reiterate on it and put it out there and see what happens. But it's really, it's really hard because creative takes so much time. And if you're scaling fast, like we were, like it takes weeks to get assets. Right. So like we would do a shoot and then we would be like, so we're going to have it next day. Right. And they would be like, bro, it's going to take us two weeks to get you assets. And we would be like, no, no, no that's not happening. Like we move at lightning speed and you don't understand. Like we, we just don't have anything to put out. Like we have to have content. So it was a struggle in the beginning, but eventually, you know, we hired the right people and we figured it out, but it was tough. One of the things I'm curious about with that, what you mentioned there, you said that you now have some in-house capabilities to be able to do that. I imagine that's for speed sake. And then reading one of your posts too, you mentioned that being one of the things you like to do, like make decisions quickly, which I want to get into. But from the evolution of agency versus in-house, how have you thought about that timing on when to bring it in-house? Because I know people run into this issue all the time. It's like, do we outsource this? Do we hire it in-house? It's always this conundrum. I'm just curious on for you, Ryan, and True Classic, how you've uh, you know, thought about that. I don't, I'm like, I'm such a proponent of always bringing everything in house. I think that's always the way to go. Ultimately, the problem with that though, is that you do lose outside perspective. And I think it's so valuable to have this diversity of ideas that you're constantly bringing in. And that, and that's even outside of LA, like people in LA tend to shoot relatively the same. It's like, I just noticed by using so many different photographers out here, they use the same spots. They all do the downtown area. They all use the yeah, same yeah, spots, yeah. right? So like you have to start using like people in St. Louis and people in Dallas. And like, you just got to kind of branch out and get new perspectives and new ideas. 
We even like did some stuff in Chicago. And, you know, I think there's a healthy balance ultimately. Like you just can't do everything in house, especially for the sake of diversity, yeah. you know, cause everyone kind of gets into a mode of like what they think everything should look like. And sometimes you just gotta like break down the walls and start over and go, okay, this guy's got a brand new idea. He lives in, in, in Boston and he wants to do this. So like we, I would say 80% of what we do is in-house. The other 20% we cycle between different agencies and we're giving a lot of new agencies chances all the time. Like we're testing, uh, you know, the tube sciences of the world and the Vayner medias and, and, and all these other companies to like see yeah. like what they can come out with us. And, and we just want to have net new ideas and uh, that's the only way you can really do it outside of in-house. You mentioned you prefer in-house though, typically. Because Why? I feel like nobody really gets the brand like the people that are in-house and living it all day, every day. I just feel like the people that breathe us, like like Nicholas, our video guy here, just showed me our Chino ad. And it was just so on brand and so perfect for us. And I just thought to myself, <laughs> like, there's no way you would get this on the first take with an agency. We would have had to go through yeah. like seven, like back and forth and iterations to get what we wanted out of an agency in-house. They just, they get it. Like they just know who we are, what we want to look like and, and what it should sound and feel like. So it just tends to be faster when you do it in-house because of that. All right. I want to dive deeper on that speed thing. As you mentioned, <laughs> execute at warp speed being one of the things you, you learned about, cared about obviously with your company. What does that mean for true classic in terms of executing at warp speed and how that come about for you guys? So for whatever reason, the three of us, always just moved at lightning speed. And I don't think we were really that conscious of it at the time. Looking back, everyone like says how crazy it is. But when we're, we're when you're doing it, we yeah. were just, you know, we're three entrepreneurs and we're just trying to do the best we can. And we, we made so many mistakes along the way. I mean, I, I have, I could do an hour <laughs> just on the mistakes. I mean, just, we failed at everything originally, but we weren't scared to fail, I think is kind of the punchline. And when you're moving that fast, you're going to stumble. You're going to, you're going to break things. And we were just okay with that. We were just like, you know what? It, it, we were not in the analysis paralysis mode at all. And I just like, we were just like, let's just move and see what happens and we'll figure it out along the way. And then we'll like take that data and then we'll learn from it and we'll move accordingly. So for better or worse, I think it's the best way to run a business in the beginning because you just can't button everything up and you kind of got to learn the hard way as to what works and what doesn't. So yeah. that's really what it came from. It really was not an intentional thing. We just have no other way of operating. We're just used to like flying yeah. through things and then going, oh shit, we just lost. Like, here's a crazy one. This just happened literally yeah. a day ago. We figured this out. So, you know, we launched international, right? Uh -huh. This is like maddening to think about looking back now. You know how in other countries they have like little marks above the letter um yep. like little like apostrophes and things like that on different different parts of the world like it's very common right so we have this app that validates the address <laughs> and what the app was doing was oh, not no. allowing anybody with a little comma or anything above a letter to add their address in which means the conversion rate was like <laughs> 90% worse than what it should have been. Oh, Ryan. But we literally turned that app off. I'm not kidding you. We turned that app off. France went from a 0.3 conversion to a 3% conversion overnight. And we were like, oh my God. 
Like how much money did we just lose over the last two weeks of rolling? I mean, thank God we didn't let it run for like a month. Like we, we only yeah. lost conversion data for like two weeks. But like, imagine if I let that run for like a month and a half. Like, again, this goes back to like the speed thing. Like we just couldn't have foreseen that. And the only reason we found out is because a customer told us. We would have let that just run, right? Like that's just so... <laughs> It's frustrating. You break things and you figure it out the hard way. That's the punchline. One of the other things about scaling, which we haven't talked about yet, is the manufacturing side of it. So getting in with that first manufacturer, huge. That's a huge part of any, any e-commerce brand for sure. But as you're looking at scaling, their capacity, obviously a limit in some some ways, everything like that. I think you said you have uh, like 10 plants across different countries. How has the manufacturing side, scaling that, figuring out who to work with, tell me more of that side of the business too. Yeah, so we worked with our one manufacturer for, I want to say, a year and a half or so, which was bad. I mean, you really <laughs> do not want to be beholden to one manufacturer. One person, yeah, one breaking point. So many things, yeah, I mean, so many things can go wrong, right? Not only that, at any point, they know they can just charge you more. And what are you going to do? Like you have zero leverage to negotiate, right? So I think what changed was we started understanding we didn't need to diversify. We need to keep them competitive, our manufacturers. And, um, and it safeguards the business. So we brought in a head of sourcing and that was a game changer because she came in with like so much experience, knew all the manufacturers all over the world, knew how to talk to them, knew how to negotiate with them and manage them and get the best out of them and QC the product and do all the things that we were bad at. And she came in and got us way lower rates. Like we went from, you know, paying, uh, you know, 50% more to just getting it down to like, you know, 50 cents less per shirt or whatever it was and, uh, and still having the same quality. So, um, sourcing, having someone that just focused on sourcing full time, insanely important to your margins, to diversifying, making sure you don't have a single source of failure um, just so important. And it's just made our life so much better. And, you know, with the capacity issue, you know, you can only do so much, right? Like you, yeah. you, you grow out of manufacturers. They can only handle a hundred thousand units a month or, or whatever it is. So you have to like be moving in parallel to figure out like, okay, this one over here can handle the load. Like, what do we do if we're in an emergency situation who can get us something on a fast boat? or who can fly it in or whatever it is. So like, especially with like Black Friday, when you underbuy and then all of a sudden you're about to tap out and you realize, oh shit, we're two weeks away from being zero. So you have to like have these emergency levers that you can like get a manufacturer in Mexico to, you know, you have to pay double the cogs, but you will get it in two weeks and it'll be flown up and you're going to be paying an arm and a leg. But it just is what it is to get product. So <laughs> going back to the, your, your sorcerer, you mentioned, how did you find her? Curious. We recruited her. She was working for, I think American Eagle okay. or uh, American apparel. I think it was. Um, and we found her on LinkedIn, just like everybody, we find everyone on LinkedIn. So Nick, uh, my co-founder is an unbelievable headhunter, and he gets the best of the best. And he just literally uses like, email credits and like just messages people and that's it like that's there's no you know the whole like i learned a lot about hiring too uh you know even though i had an agency for a long time what i was doing was just putting a job posting out and seeing who would show up terrible way to hire 
the way you hire is you go after the people you want. You seek them out, you make them an offer, and and you and you know it's 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 open market. People can do whatever they want. They have free will, right? If they're happy, they'll just say no. If not, they'll yeah. move. So um, that's what we do. We go after the people we really want, and um, and that's it. How do you decide that in terms of like how do you figure out who those people are? Like what you know, like okay, we want someone who's been a big brand, so they'll have that experience. Like the same through the more of the thinking behind that, because I know people hear that they're gonna be like, oh yeah, of course. But how do I find the person then to even go yeah. after? It? So we have a lot of seasoned people in this organization in the executive department. So basically what we'll do is we will say, okay, we know we, we need this role. What does that JD look like? like? What's the job description for that? And then we'll list out all the qualities and then we'll say, okay, this is like our ideal candidate. This is kind of what we want. This is the salary range. Like we're willing to pay for this position. Yeah. And then, so we'll all strategize on that as a group. And you know, now that we have like these high level executives that come from these big companies, they know like what it's supposed to look like. And they also know like really who we need for each department. So it's just really a combination. When you start hiring those high level execs, they come with so much corporate knowledge that they just know what like, the, like we had no, like before Ben came on, Ben is my uh, chief business officer. He worked at Meta for four years. He was head of the disruptors program. And we didn't even have an org chart when he came aboard and he was like coming on like, okay, He's used to all these like systems and everything being in place at Facebook. And he came out and he's like, where's the org chart? And we're like, uh, we don't have one. And it was like, <laughs> like, all right, well, we got to start from zero then. And he came in and implemented all these amazing processes that he took from Facebook and implemented here. And, um, and it just transformed the way that employees communicated with each other. We did a lot better at like setting goals for them and, and doing quarterly reviews and all these like little things that um, corporate does that we yeah. were a mom and pop business or a startup. We just didn't know that you had to do quarterly reviews or whatever. So, um, so yeah, but to your question specifically, it, you just got to spend a lot of time with people that know what they're doing and what they're looking for to, and then you just got to start really scouring uh, LinkedIn and just trying to find out, you know, who's in those positions. What is it? What is it exactly that they're doing? And then you can also just jump on the phone with them and kind of flush it out, right? Like what's your day to day look like? And then they'll tell you, and then you can take that back and go, guys, this is not actually what we thought we needed. They're only doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. Let's tailor that JD and go back and reevaluate. So that's kind of how we think about it. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier around this like expansion and the, the chaos that happened when you realize you have the wrong, whatever, you can't do a tilde or whatever thing on top of a, a letter. Uh, take me through the expansion outside of US and how you even decided when the right time was for that, when you were ready to be like, all right, let's go, let's expand outside, let's go broader. I'm curious about that. So we knew eventually international was in, our, in the cards for us, but um, it is such a monster to take on. We had no idea. I mean, it's just, you know, we think the U.S. is like the whole world. It's like the world is the world. Like it, yeah, it is yeah. so much bigger than us. Like we, when we're here, we all think it's about us, but it's so much bigger. And, you know, the taxes, the tariffs, the 3PLs, the, the translation, the, I mean, you just can't imagine how many pieces to international that there really are before you can turn that switch on. And we were completely overwhelmed with it. So what happened was, we figured out there was a company out there called Global E, and essentially they already have it all figured out for you. So you pay them a percentage of revenue, 
they dial you in, they do all the work, and then you just give them a piece of the pie and they take over. And for us, you know, we move at lightning speed. It was perfect. So we were like, you know what? Screw it. Why waste nine months, have to hire eight people to manage this when we can just go global E and then turn it on. And, and that's not to say we haven't still had hiccups and bumps in the road, but it expedited our go to market to international by literally eight or nine months. I mean, it's a, and that goes for retail too. Like we hired this company called Leap who does the same thing that Global E does for international. They expedite the entire process. They make it so that you can scale retail up because if we were to do it in-house, it would take us nine months to a year to get to market and really do it right. They have it all figured out. They have a product. They take care of all the OPEX. They take care of the hiring, the staffing, the designing. They already have the leases in place. Like it's just seamless. We just like look at the location and say, go. And um, those type of businesses are so important to a growth company like ours so that we don't have to think about it. And we're just yeah. happy to pay a percentage of revenue. Now, eventually, maybe we take it in-house long-term, but right now we're happy with just like speed. So, Okay, well, one of the last things I'm curious about, there's a lot of things, but we'll never get to them all, which is fine. One of the last things though is just with everything you're doing, you mentioning the speed and everything you're going after, what do you want True Classic to become? I'm curious because there's so many things you're, from this interview, I already have an idea of where you're going, but like, what's the end game, man? What do you want? <laughs> There's two things that I really think a lot about. I think, you know, number one, mission and impact is probably the biggest for me. I want to be the brand that people come to when they need something, uh, even outside of clothing, just like when natural disasters happen, I want to be the first one there with toiletries and the things that like people really need when bad shit happens. Like, yeah. I just think there's not enough businesses using their resources in the right way for, for the right reasons. So I think so much about, you know, and, and, but again, it all goes back to being intentional, right? And I just feel like it would be bad move for me to not be just always thinking about humans first and, and even outside of selling clothing, right? Because there's just so much more going on in the world than that. So that's kind of where I see it going is just being that brand where people can reach out to us and hey, go, hey, this organization needs your help. This person over here needs your help. This family needs your help. And in, in, in LA, we already are that brand. Like, like, just like I said, with the Skid Row thing, like LA missions hit us up a week before the event. And we're like, can we get some pallets? And we're like, absolutely. And we'll be there to hand them out as well. We'll do as much as we can for you. So like people are already kind of doing that here in LA, but I want it to really go nationwide. And then on the business side, you know, I see us being bigger than Levi's. Like I really see us, as because you know Levi's is an unbelievable brand and they're very classic like us and they're you know, you know they're very all-american like us but I really just see us being way more intentional and and just being um you know over indexing on that and just being way more thoughtful about everything product and advertising and marketing and people and customer service and everything that it takes to really run a good business so I just you know the problem with these large companies is they get so big that they start to lose what actually got them there and they lose that human piece of it, right? They yeah. just, it's natural. Like it's just a natural progression of where corporate ends up heading. And um, that's what I never want to lose. And that's why I think if we can stick to that motif and, and really use this look good, feel good mantra all the way up to, you know, the billions, um, that's where I wanted to go. And that's where I think we're headed. 
Well, one of those things you mentioned there, obviously helping helping out and kind of giving back a bit as well. You mentioned, I think somewhere 15,000 shirts a month or something. How do you factor that in? How do you decide on those things? Because obviously you're running a company, but then there's the impact piece too. I'm just curious on how you look at that. Yeah. So we're donating about 40,000 a month now. It started out, you know, a thousand a month, 5,000 a month. And it just like slowly, you know, as we sell more, um, we give more. And that's really what's so great about building a big business as your impact just increases. So, um, we don't really have like a set number. I just, uh, always wanted the impact to scale with the business. Like I know a lot of people say like, you know, they give a percentage of sales or whatever it is, but I just like the thought of not setting a limit and just like, let's just keep it moving up as the business goes. And, you know, it, it, we don't feel it at all. So it's just like, why not just give and give and give, you know, we're doing such tremendous revenue that like donating 40,000 is a drop in the bucket for us. So like, why not? Right. So, um, and then the other things that we do, like, you know, building the houses and things like that, it really is just a function of like what comes to me and what people like, let me know they need. Um, it's a lot of that. It's a lot of me also, um, like my dad is involved in this tiny house project in Savannah. So like, I'm pretty well connected to that, but I'm looking a lot now at organizations that need help outside of shirts. And I just love to be involved in other things that aren't just clothing related necessarily. So, um, you know, if there's people even listening to this that know of an organization that needs help, I'm all ears. Like I really do want to be the voice on Twitter of people that just go, Oh, this is perfect for true classic to jump on it and be a part of. So, um, but to answer your question, there's not like, I don't overthink it. Like I really just let things happen as they happen and I keep things really dynamic. Um, and I want people to like, you know, I'm just really busy. So I want people to reach out and, you know, and, and help us help them. Of course. To that point, where is the best place for people to reach out to you and also learn more about true classic? Um, I mean, the best place to learn is definitely the website. You can reach out through the website. It'll definitely get to me. If you say in the message, like, uh, I'm interested in in Ryan helping out it, there is a path to me for sure. I'm not like in this ivory tower. Like I, I'm very much a man of the people. Twitter's an easy way to get to me. Um, like, like reaching out through customer service, they'll literally send me a message within seconds and I'm hearing about it on Slack. So, um, we're very, uh, tighten it so awesome ryan this has been a lot of fun thank you so much for the time today i really appreciate it yeah man thank you for having me really appreciate it thank you so much for listening to this episode of just go grind if you want to follow along on the socials for all things just go grind and with me as well you can find just go grind on instagram and twitter at just go grind you can find me on twitter at justin gordon 212 find me on instagram justin gordon 8 thank you so much for listening have a great day